So I Married an Alcoholic is sponsored by RealtorAndABaby.com. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease real estate? Even if you're not in greater Philadelphia, reach out with your contact information so you can be connected with the most qualified realtor in your area. RealtorAndABaby at gmail.com. Get away Save our troubles for another day Come on Maggie, we got it made Let me take you on an escapade Maggie, Maggie you ready? We want to talk about Maggie Yes, yes, and an escapade it shall be, I promise you. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, lords and ladies, cats, dogs, the queen. Hello, queen. Normies, alcoholics, newcomers, regular listeners, friends alike. It is season two, episode 25 of the world-famous So I Married an Alcoholic podcast. I'm Chris. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm Megan, and I'm an alcoholic. Friendly reminder that my pronouns are junkie, alcoholic, and soon to be cemented in eternity. Asshole. Yeah. Always. (laughs) Yeah. If nothing else, I'm consistent, darling. I I always know what I'm going to get. Do you, though? No, that's a problem. I don't. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) fucking circus over here and i never know what's next we're really gonna dive into that much much deeper in a little bit let's thank the sponsors our studio sponsor is marlane graphics marlanegraphics.com for all of your printing needs and our show sponsor is realtor and a baby realtor and for all of your real estate needs we are finally back in the safe space that i have created for you megan my love my one and only true love my First and only wife, etc., etc. Good to be back. <laughs> Megan is just staring at me so upset right now. I'm not actually. That's okay. We'll move past it. Sure. We spent the week in Massachusetts, a couple of days at Mumsy's. Again, she got throw up drunk, threw us out. We ended up at Auntie Gay P's a couple of days early. And we finished out the week at uh, Auntie Gay P's. It was lovely. It was. It was really relaxing. We did a lot of just sitting in the backyard and touring a Shaker village. Chris prepared us many dinners. All the dinners. Yeah, it was. It was. Oh, and we saw a show. We did see a show. And it was great. So we had a really good time. Interestingly enough, the Berkshires, there's a couple of, I guess, theater companies in the Berkshires that do world premieres of shows. So Auntie Gay P was telling us over the winter he saw Mr. Saturday Night with Billy Crystal before it was ever on Broadway or off-Broadway or anything. I guess that would be kind of off-Broadway, Yeah, before it, it went to Broadway. It's almost like they preview them there to see if it's gonna make the broadway cut mm. um it's like the can film festival of place of theater yeah yeah it's really cool so we saw one and it was great and i maybe they'll it'll end up in new york 
it it very well could be. I I don't know. I'm not I'm not much of a uh, what's the the two dudes Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, me neither. Because I'm like, wow, that's better than I could do. I thought it was good. I was entertained. Like two thumbs up. You yeah. know, I don't know. I can't like artistically grade anything. I don't have an artistic bone in my body. No, same here. I mean, I'm you know sitting in a box seat. I have my sport coat over my lap. Megan's giving me a handy. Like I'm in my. I'm in my happy place. It actually wasn't that kind of theater. They were literally like maybe folding chairs. Whatever. You ruined the magic of But everything. it was great. We had a really good time. We sure did. And then uh, it was like just, I don't know. I, I think Massachusetts during the summer is hit or miss when it comes to the weather. Yeah. It was the perfect weather week. It was. It was, the sun was hot, but like you didn't overheat because there was a nice breeze or the clouds would come a little bit. It just was lovely. Hmm. Berkshires has built-in air conditioning. I guess. I mean, it was lovely. Yep. And maybe it's the wooded areas that keep it nice and cool. And there was a crisp breeze. It was just, it was a perfect night. You know, you needed the sweatshirt in the evening. That's my perfect kind of weather. Yeah, I agree with that. So we're back home. We were, as we were hitting the road, you know, the creative juices are flowing. I'm like racked up with, I don't know if anxiety is the right word. I'm just the angriest driver in the world. So anywho. I downloaded Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, the book that he wrote back in 2005, I think you said, or was it 2001? I want to say 2001. Anthony Bourdain uh, unfortunately committed suicide back in 2018. May he rest in peace. But talk about an incredibly talented man you know was he did the chef thing for a while then he had a couple of shows I, I don't know if it was on the travel channel or cnn whatever it, it doesn't really matter but i think he is a really public and shining example of like that old phrase tortured soul absolutely and you i know? think it came out positively in a way with his art you know with his cooking with his you know, TV shows, all that kind of stuff. Like, I, you know, I, I don't know if that darkness drove him or that, I don't know, OCD drove him to perfection in many of those things that made a lot of his business ventures successful. It all led to his death. But anyway, pretty incredible story. Yeah, so we started out with the book, though, and then went down the rabbit hole. Oh, we sure did, because, again, it, not one thing is good enough for your old pal Uncle Chris. So uh, we started with a book, which was just such an incredible read. We listened to it on audiobook, and I'm sure that you all know by now I am not much of a reader. Uh, I've quite literally read maybe a dozen books in my entire life. That's including textbooks. It's not something I'm proud of. It's just the numbers are the numbers. It is what it is. This audiobook was eight and a half hours, something like that. I could not put it down. I mean, I literally, the drive home was five, five and a half hours. Then I came home and listened to it for like an hour. Yeah, it was like playing in our kitchen. I woke up the next day. I was listening to it, you know, doing the chores, things that Megan doesn't do around the house, et cetera, et cetera. And then we watched the movie. And it was, what is it, a biography? It's not an autobiography. No. It was like a documentary. Yes. It was a documentary. I forgot who did it. Also exceptional. And that was after, right? Wasn't it? It was after he had died. Yes. It was after he had committed suicide and they brought in, you know, some of the people that he worked for, some of his closest friends, mm -hmm. uh, his former wives, and I guess at the very end, 
girlfriend. I don't think he was yeah, married to I the last one. Yeah, but I don't actually think they interviewed her. They were showing kind of clips, like in the past, like they they weren't bringing her on for live TV. Yeah, there was something something amiss about that last relationship, and obviously, you know, you get whoever the filmmaker is or the documentarian Their gives perspective, you exactly. Yeah. So we we miss that, but that may be for the best. I have my own assumptions and opinions, if you will. Me too. <laughs> but anyways, so we, Megan and I, started talking, you know, privately about Anthony Bourdain. Now, he had started out, you know, he wasn't like an Anderson Cooper. He didn't come from a silver spoon. His mom wasn't a Vanderbilt. They were regular old people. He got a job, I think, when he was 17 or 18, cooking at a kitchen in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Yeah. Well, you forget the part, though, that he actually would summer in France. Well, they made a couple of trips to France okay. because his <laughs> dad was from France. Right. I mean, that's a big deal, though. I didn't get a summer in France. Did you? No, you summered homeless at your parents' beach house. But that's where he like fell in love with cooking. It is. He actually, it says in the book, it actually starts off that he fell in love. They were out on an oyster boat one day. I think like a a villager, maybe his uncle or something like that was an oyster fisherman. The uncle dug down into the water and scooped up a fresh oyster for him. And he said, he describes it in the book, and I'm going to totally butcher it, but I'll do it anyways because I love the sound of my voice. He didn't even think it tasted good. It was just something about... I don't, I don't know, the adventure, the texture of the oyster, how it was harvested, that he just fell in love. And that one small event set in motion basically the rest of Anthony Bourdain's life. Mm-hmm. And he lived a very, I mean, checkered life, right? Yes. He was a heroin addict. He was an alcoholic. He was on methadone for a couple of years. Uh, lots and lots of failures along the way. And I mean, lots like, I I don't know, maybe eight or 10 different restaurants that he worked at or had a hand in driving directly into the ground. Yeah, Uh, He started his own catering business with a friend. So he wasn't just, you know, he, he ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America, the CIA. But what I'm saying is he wasn't just an overnight success story. Like, there were many stumbles along the way. No, absolutely. And I think that why I'm really saying that is I think that any alcoholic addict can relate to that sort of thing, if not professionally, definitely in your own alcoholism or addiction, right? Mm -hmm. So anyways, Megan and I started talking about it like this is really just a, a troubled, tortured soul. And obviously there's the drugs and alcohol. Ultimately, the suicide, I think, is what led us to ask each other, is there some sort of other underlying mental health component? Does the chicken come before the egg? Is there always a mental health piece to it? And then we just started like going down the rabbit hole from there. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's a statistic. We had actually read it on here, and I don't have it pulled up currently, but it's something crazy, like alcoholics or addicts are have like a 10 times higher suicide rate than everyone else. But I mean, at this point, he was sober. And that was even something that they said in the end, like his friend said, you know, I could have understood if he was drunk, but his talk stream came back completely negative. Yes. So that that particular evening, 
he was drug and alcohol free. But I, I wouldn't not that I'm trying to correct you, but I wouldn't. I think it's sort of misleading, if you will, to say that he was sober at that point. Oh, OK. I didn't know he went back to. Oh, no, he was still drinking. Oh, he was still drinking. That was my question. So he did still drink. He just didn't do the heroin anymore. Yes, exactly. Okay. You know, again, I, I think there's a lot of us and like that statistic that you just pointed out is scary, uh, sad, but not surprising. No, not surprising. I think, too, you know, if there's that mental health component, if you add drugs and alcohol, it kind of gives you like this sounds terrible, but almost like, you know, the beer balls where you may have the guts to take your own life that you want to if you were sober. Does that make sense? I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I, I've had very extended family members that have committed suicide. Obviously, you hear about it not all the time, but, I mean, there's there's certainly large percentages in our circles, large percentages in the military. And, you know, there's a part of me that's like, well, yeah, no kidding. I mean, look at the lives that they led and the jobs that they had to do. Like, suicide, I think, really becomes an actual option for most people. I got to be honest with you. I never had the balls to commit suicide. Yeah, I was never. It was never on my hit list either. I know that sounds terrible, but it was it's never a terrible something, way to put it. I know it was never something I really struggled with, like through my addiction. You know, maybe there was times that I thought it would have been easier to not wake up, but I, I never had a plan. There was I was never a risk. Mm. No, if I, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would also say that I was never a risk, although, again, uh, I haven't been shy about it. I spent two decades of my life actively trying to kill myself, but I wasn't going to put a rope around my neck. No, but you weren't doing anything to prolong your life either. Certainly wasn't. Agreed. You know, but it, it is what it is. It led me to you, darling, and here we are. And here we are. But anyway, watching, listening to the book and then watching the movie... You really get a glimpse or a, a real description of his insanity. I don't know if there's a better way to describe it. And again, sometimes that insanity is insanely productive. Like the way he is in a kitchen, the way he runs the kitchen, you know, the way he was with his career. But is there really a component of OCD to that? I would say absolutely. And can you actually be a successful chef? with? Like he talks about that a lot. Like... The drugs, the alcohol, the mental illness involved in being a chef because of they're all tortured souls. And, and I, I don't think that's a blanket statement. I'm sure there's very normal, perfectly mentally sound chefs. I just don't know if they're any good. Well, I mean, you take a look at I think one of the classic examples of fucking lunatic is Gordon Ramsay. Yes. Right. You see Google Gordon Ramsay in the first 10 clips that come up or audio come up is him losing his shit in a kitchen yeah totally it's kind of like i say with surgeons right they have to have a god complex yeah absolutely in order to say i am so good i can cut open someone's body you got to think pretty damn highly of yourself and it's not self-confidence it's often narcissism Mm -hmm. And again, that doesn't speak for all surgeons. I'm just saying that's a <laughs> quality that a lot of humans don't possess, you know? No, I agree with you. And that kind of leads me to the question, is it, you know, again, one of the most shining examples of fucking lunatic being Gordon Ramsay, who lives a completely normal. Yeah, I was going to say he lives a normal life. Productive life, right? Mm -hmm. So is it that somebody like that has it under control versus somebody like Anthony Bourdain who maybe didn't 
have it under control or didn't find the right outlet? Yeah, I don't know if it's the right outlet or I think the way I looked at it is there's always a solution. Like I was saying to Chris, you know, with um, schizophrenia, with depression, with anxiety, like there's, you know, chemical imbalances that require medicine, right? Uh, But again, you can live a relatively normal life if you're properly medicated. But then you get into some of these like personality disorders Mm. and like, what is the solution to that? You know, like Chris will throw around half joking, maybe serious. He's like, well, I'm too much of a narcissist for that. And it's funny recently when he's been saying that, I'm like, yeah, so that's actually not an excuse. I think that's just me telling myself that I'm not excessive on the narcissism, but I I think I am. No, but see, (laughs) so anyway, the point of it is, I think that's like actually just an excuse. Like what makes you a narcissist? You're a self-centered asshole? Yeah, fix that, bro. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I don't. I I think some of those traits, like I guess I look at it from the alcoholic perspective and, you know, the pain, the insanity that went with addiction Mm -hmm. and a lot of that, you know, the solution for us at least was found in AA. And I've said a lot of times that, you know, I think a lot of the other things that ailed me made better with AA. And I think that there's still obviously work to do. Sure. But I think with things like that, there is always a solution, you know, so that mental illness component. And again, there's legitimate things that require medication and maybe he needed medication. But I don't know. I think you can choose to let that insanity control you rather than you controlling the insanity and putting it to purely productive means. Sure. Is there... A certain level of mental illness, you could call it, you know, anxiety, OCD, narcissism, whatever. We'll just put a blanket mental illness on it. Is there a certain level of that that is maybe acceptable or even required in some cases? No, I do think so. In fact, it's funny. My son will sometimes talk about being anxious about something or nervous about something. And I I tell him, like, that's okay. It's okay to be anxious about things. Don't let it control you. Don't let it run your life. Learn how to deal with it. But a lot of times the things he's anxious about really just means he has a conscience. You know what I mean? Like he's nervous Hmm. about hurting someone else or not doing well enough. Or you know what I mean? It's not abnormal things to be anxious about. And I I think sometimes that in society we almost over-label it. I, I don't know. Like... It's okay to have a little bit of anxiety about things. Like, life can be scary. Different things you have to do in your day can cause those thoughts. Like, it it doesn't mean that you can't have them. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? And I think, in a way, it's healthy. Like, if if you're going into... I did oncology for the first 10 years of my career. And, you know, people come in for their first chemo, and they're like, I I didn't sleep last night. I'm anxious. And I'm like, that's great. I worry about the people that aren't. (laughs) wait a minute and i know i kind of laugh at that but why are you worried about the people that aren't maybe they've just accepted it differently or no if you don't have a slight bit of nervousness or anxiety going into your first chemotherapy Mm -hmm. like you don't have a soul you know what i mean like there's something that's not normal that's not a normal reaction or are you gonna have like a truly 
full out like mental breakdown down the line because it's normal to come in that first day and have a little bit of anxiety. That's normal. You don't know what to expect. You've never done this before. And it's a big deal. It's not Mm -hmm. going to get a blood draw. You know what I mean? It's chemotherapy. Like there's no, I'm someone that's worked, I worked in it for a bazillion years. I would still be a little bit anxious the day before my first chemo. You know, that's a normal response. So I think it's actually okay to have some anxiety. Just like, you know, there's a difference between depression and sadness. It's okay to be sad. You're allowed to have feelings. Things are going to make you sad. Your dog can't die. You know, if your dog dies, you don't have to be happy about it. Like, you can be sad. That's a normal reaction. I think that's a terrible example. I guess because you don't think I'd be that sad. Well, no, maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe you wouldn't be that sad, but that would just tear me up inside. What would? The dog dying. That's what I'm saying. That's a normal reaction. But like, I don't know, if you got lost on a ship at sea, like I'd, I'd, I'd accept that. Like it is what it is. It's because you're a narcissist and your dog doesn't compete with that. That's a fair point. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. So at what level does it become, I don't know, healthy versus consuming? I think if it negatively impacts your everyday life, just like with alcoholism, you can. What a fucking breakthrough. People can drink alcohol socially. They can drink alcohol, a glass of wine with dinner every night. They can drink alcohol to excess on occasion if they like. If it does not negatively impact their life, doesn't have a the personality change, doesn't change their environment around them, then there's mm. no problem with it. You know what I mean? Sure. No, I, I totally get that. I'm just, again, I ask the questions. You provide the phenomenal <laughs> answers. No, I don't think that's the truth, but. I also don't think that's the truth, but that's okay. So what about, I don't know, OCD? Isn't there a certain level of OCD that's required to live a healthy, clean, normal life? I think there's a difference between like being particular about things and actual OCD. So like anal versus OCD. Yeah, exactly. Like OCD normally comes with rituals and like it's one thing to have to scrub the kitchen down. It's another thing to have to do it with the same sponge four times this direction, that direction, like over and over again. Mm. Like that's where you start to cross into like kind of mental illness. But can you fix that what is the solution like can you train yourself to not do those things how is that any different than alcoholism uh well you know cleaning the counter four times in the same direction doesn't get you a dui no it doesn't but it you know maybe it makes you late for your job or you know what i mean these things have consequences yeah there's still consequences these things impact people's lives definitely Hmm. okay you know so you know is there a solution like i guess that's what i was thinking we found the quote-unquote solution, right? And where do else did we apply it in our lives? And where do we still need to apply it in our lives personally? Uh, up and down every which direction, all day, every day, I still fall short. But is that a lack of effort? You know what I mean? And that I think hmm. that's what I'm saying. Like, is that an excuse, a lack of effort? Uh it's not because you're not capable. You have the tools, right? Like they were given to you by another alcoholic. You worked them. You taught other people how to work them. Mm-hmm. So anytime you quote unquote fall short, there's a human component. But there's right. also a component that I think is just 
you know, personal failure or a lack of effort, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think it also goes a lot to the, like, I'm cured extent. Which is complete and utter bullshit. Yeah. So that's your problem right there. What about narcissism? So I I think that's Ooh, the this, one that was really Maggie, that's the one that was really two, two of them now raging narcissists. So that's the one that was really kind of like egging on me as I'm like watching this Anthony Bourdain and then we watched a movie too with Bradley Cooper. Ah uh, yes, what's it called? Burnt. Uh, burnt. Yes, and it's a must see because he's so handsome. Right. And anyway, um, yeah, same thing. And so that's kind of what got my wheels spinning, like thinking about like. Narcissism, I feel like that's a term we use so often. And I feel like I know people and, you know, I'm like, they're a narcissist, right? Like, full-blooded. But why? Like, what is the excuse for being like that? Can't you fix that, you know? I think the answer is also yes. Anything can be fixed. Right, that's what I mean. Either through therapy or hard work or medication or whatever. I think the question becomes... A willingness thing is there you know you look at some of the CEOs of the biggest organizations in the world do you think their wives are thinking well he needs to be less of a narcissist like no they're enjoying that hundred million dollar salary and it gets them through the day and it is what it is so I think there's a certain level of acceptance as well oh no we were watching another movie or a documentary was it that weird one we watched with JP and they were talking about that, the big CEO, the narcissist. Oh, yeah. And what then the, the wife jumped out the window. Like, she didn't care that he traveled so much. And then, like, five years later, she jumped out the window. So, no, I think you're full of shit. To I don't think... think it's full of shit. Well, no, I think that you're wrong. Speaking from a woman's perspective, yes, I think there's some women that would be happy with just the financial income. Sure, But, no, absolutely. I do not think that fulfills most people. What about the narcissist themselves? I think it fulfills them just fine because they don't give a shit about anyone else. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Oh, is that the whole point you've been trying to make? Yeah, but why? You know, there's a. I think you can still be a crude businessman or a fantastic chef and not be a complete asshole. There's a difference between demanding things in your kitchen or in the boardroom and then bleeding that out in your personal life. And I think that was the interesting thing about Anthony Bourdain. You know, he was married for a very long time. They never had children. And I don't think it was much of a marriage per se. I mean, they were married for like 20 years. Uh, Yes, I want to say it was something like 20 years. And when you said it wasn't much of a marriage, meaning like Anthony Bourdain was working, I don't know, 18 hours a day, something like that. Exactly. I think they had a friendship. I think that he was pretty not present. He was building his career. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was this period in his life where he did marry someone and they had a child. It was like the first time that he like found this normalness, this peace. In like his mid to late 40s or something like that. Oh my God, at least I think. Mm. And then... um, that ended because again he was traveling for work traveling for work um but i don't know there's a part of me that thinks that he was continuing to search for that like there were some interesting comments made at the end um by his friends like that he was continuing to kind of search for that because he had then this like crazy like romantic over the top 
relationship with this woman that was, you know, the way it was described by outsiders was was a very manic type relationship, like mm-hmm. a very unrational, un- 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 and some may say love is, but almost out of character. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, y- you know, I mean, at least that's the that's the take home message I got that in the end, that's really kind of what brought him to the end was the ending of that relationship. Uh, yes. And there were, there were a couple of events. I, I don't want to throw the old spoiler alert in there, but yes, I would say that that was the, the day that he met that woman or, you know, entered into a serious relationship with that woman is kind of the day that uh, I hate to use the metaphor, but like, you know, strung himself up. Yeah, beginning of the end. And is that woman, quote unquote, or that relationship any different than picking back up heroin? <sighs> like, was it the same thing? Is if you don't do the work and fix those innards, right? Mm-hmm. Can you replace? And you know, you'll say, oh, well, you know, heroin, but that can kill you. That's a drug. It's this, it's that. But, you know, we were talking about before we came down here, the difference between taking something that's mind altering and something that's not right. Mm -hmm. So you can use that relationship to be mind altering, uh, to get a complete high, to change your personality. You know, we talked about that, I think, on the very first episode, how there's and again, I'm sure you quoted some study or something like that. But there is a direct correlation between the pleasure centers of the brain that love triggers versus the pleasure centers of the brain or the endorphins or the dopamine or whatever that drugs, alcohol, tobacco, those sort of things trigger as well. Right. So I think that's kind of where I was going with it, even like with the narcissist angle. What was the point in putting down heroin or getting sober or whatever if you don't do the work behind it? Because can your end still come from another quote unquote substance addiction flaw in your psyche that you didn't deal with? Just because you put down a drug or alcohol doesn't mean you're any better than you were when you were drinking or using. I agree. In Anthony Bourdain's case, the answer is no. You know, just because he put down the drugs, like he still filled those voids with love, you know, traveling work, whatever. Uh, I think there are a select number of people, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, that you know do put down the drugs and never go to a meeting and they can call themselves quote unquote cured. Sure, but I think either A, they weren't an alcoholic or B, I think that there's work done. It doesn't have to be through AA. You can change your mm. way you see things or the way you behave Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be with a quote-unquote program. That's just what worked for us. Sure. But I, I believe there has to be, you know, an AA or whatever they say, a spiritual change. And without that, you're never going to be better. It doesn't matter if you don't drink or use drugs again. Mm-hmm. All right, what do you have? I feel like you've had nothing to say except I agree. No, I mean, that's really it. This is your show, honey. It's not, though. Why don't you give us something, hon? This, is, this was... 36 minutes of Meg explaining to the world that her husband, second husband, is a complete narcissist. I did not. And I'm okay with that. No, I just said there's no excuse for you to be one, so get yourself together. Stop throwing that shit around. No, I disagree. Do the work, bro. I'm okay. 
with being the narcissist. Not okay. I'm also okay with my manic phases. <laughs> Not really okay with the depressive phases. Sometimes your manic phases, um, phases are productive, so I do appreciate that. Yes, of course. Like this house, I remember. <laughs> when I was building this gorgeous house for Megan, I always say that I built this house. That's narcissistic, huh? Yeah, but you kind of did. I didn't build this fucking house. I mean, house. the structure was there, but you made it a home. Well, I certainly did, darling. Anyways, back on my soapbox, if you don't uh -huh. mind. <laughs> so I'm always like, when I built you this house, and Megan was complaining because I was also working part-time and then coming over here and... I don't know, I think you said to like Rick's 17th ex-girlfriend or ex-wife or something, you were like, Chris is so hyper-focused on getting this house done, it's annoying. And I was like, well, baby's coming. Baby's not waiting. <laughs> we need to move into this house. So, yes, uh, my manic phases can definitely be a positive thing. Uh, again, it's like most things, there's that sort of yang and yang to it. And I would say that actually speaks to your narcissism because that six weeks that you were fixing up this house was actually some of my favorite. Because I was so pregnant, I would just stop by in the afternoon, see the progress, and then I would go home and eat bowls of cereal <sighs> and take naps and watch really bad TV. Which is different than what? Not what you do on it. What it's... Exactly no, what you do on a daily basis. You've repeated that same pattern of behavior for the past two and a half years. That's Nothing's changed. Full of Maybe shit. the ramen because you have like terrible sodium levels. Oh or my something. god! Remember when I was so addicted to the ramen in my pregnancy? Mm. Remember when you couldn't find your slippers and you were screaming at me and Mac? It's awful being pregnant. Where are my fucking slippers? <laughs> I was like, holy shit, we're fucked, dude. Let's go. <laughs> We're going to get ice cream. <laughs> bail out, bail out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's interesting. You know, I, I watched that thing. You know, I watched that documentary on Anthony Bourdain and obviously could relate to a lot of the OCD and, I don't know, the narcissism and the nastiness and, you know, the screaming and the yelling and the the motivation and the drive and the, I think, ultimately, like, the searching yeah, well, it's funny. I said to Chris, you know, I don't know if anyone knows this, but Chris originally, his original plan at some point when he was enrolled to start college at the ripe old age of 18 was to go to culinary school. At one of my many, many attempts at college. Yes. And so we're sitting there watching the movie portion. I was like, you would have made a really great chef. Like, this is your personality. Like, you do have that OCD, but also that leadership quality. Like, you would have made a fantastic chef. You'd be dead by now. 100%. And he completely Or agreed. in jail, because I would have put one of those chef's knives through somebody's temple. Yes. But, um, you know, yeah, there are some similarities. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, what was the, what's the in introspective that you did after watching it? I could really relate to some of those attitudes and behaviors and the successes and the failures and almost to a certain extent. And I don't think that this was really prevalent in the movie, but like the why me? Really? You know, the why me? And again, I, I sat in many a rehab and, and many a, a drunken detox state like why me? And I think I just got to a certain point where I found the solution being AA and there was no why me? There's no poor me. Right. It's, again, like you were saying, you have to change things. 
Yeah, exactly. And that change provides you with a different sort of perspective. It's not like why me. It's I think the answer is it is me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think acceptance, right? Yeah, it's uh, you know I said I'm on all these like Facebook pages and stuff like that, and like the ones that are like. I know why I'm an alcoholic. When I was three years old, blah, blah, I'm like, scroll past, scroll past. Like, no, it, I know that sounds terrible, but Wrong. you haven't found the solution yet. And that's okay. I hope you stick around. Maybe you'll get there. Because that's that's not why. I mean, yes, of course, our pasts affect who we are, but th- the solution's not in it. No, I agree. And I think at some point, uh, you know, I turn those why me's into a why not me. Yeah, exactly. Why can't you do better? Right. So I think what I'm saying is you see those similarities, right? And there was so much good that he did, right? Like his career. And they also talked about him being like, he would go and sit with the people in the Congo and like do all these amazing things too that I don't think gets enough, you know, publicity or whatever, but obviously didn't end well for him. So, you know, looking at that, seeing those similarities, like, what should he or could he have changed or done better to not have had the same end result? I mean, I, I hate to be an asshole, but it's kind of a moot point, you know? It is for him, but not for you or not for me or not for someone that's listening that's still here. Okay, fair enough. Right? I will indulge your request. So I think, you know, what do we learn from people that went before us, you know? Again, it's just a constant work in progress. And it's something that no matter what stage you are in, in your recovery or in your life phase or your career or whatever, it's something that always requires work. Like you will hear, if you go to enough AA meetings, you'll hear something along the lines of resting on your laurels, which is perhaps one of the most dangerous things the alcoholic or the addict or the the mentally afflicted can be guilty of. Right. I think the want the day you wake up and forget that you're actually sick, just no longer suffering is the day you'll pick back up. Mm hmm. You know, so, yeah, no, you're right. You need that reality check every day. Yeah, absolutely. And I will be, again, the first to tell you, and I'm sure Megan will be happy to to back this up, that we are not perfect creatures. We're not perfect alcoholics. We're not perfect husband and wife. You know, we kind of are like the perfect, like, Pier 1 Imports family. (laughs) Like, we could definitely make their cover. So anybody that works in marketing that has a relationship with Pier 1, hit us up. We'll be happy to to appear on their cover. (laughs) I think it does. Like, it it requires a a daily amount of work. And like you said, the the minute that you're like, well, I'm cured. And I say it all the time just because, you know, I'm a narcissist and shit like that. But... (laughs) You know, that's one of the most dangerous things that the alcoholic or the addict can can face. And again, I think it, it constantly takes takes a really fucking good hard look at yourself in the very beginning. And I think it takes a daily check in, a daily reminder that you are an alcoholic and you are not cured and you can find any number of outlets that you choose. But if you veer off you know, that recovery path, that AA path, whatever path that got you to where you are, you don't find yourself in quick, quick shit. Absolutely. And I think, too, it never has to end like that, like it did for him. No. 
Suicide is a permanent solution to a myriad of temporary issues. And the most selfish decision you can make. I know that. Sure is. I, I know I sound like a heartless bitch, but Chris and I, this is <laughs> Speaking horrible. Speaking of narcissists. When we were on the way back from our honeymoon, do you remember this? We just went to D.C. for a couple days, and we're taking the train back. I've, I've literally heard this story. First of all, I live this story. I've heard this story retold in so many different circles. I'm taking my headphones off, and I'm going to shit. I'll be back. And we're dry, We're on the train back. We took a lovely Amtrak ride, and we're like literally 10 minutes, 12 minutes from 30th Street Station, and it's late. It's like 930 at night, and that's late for us, and we're working the next day. And all of a sudden, we hear that feel this big bump at a bump, and then the train come to a stop. And Chris is like, that wasn't a branch. And we're like, motherfucker. And, you know, they told us that someone had jumped in front of the train, right? And you have to wait until they come and invest. It's like an hours and hours long process before you get off the fucking train. <laughs> Which is not good, by the way. That was the quickest shit ever. And uh, never ever forget this if you know you forget anything that i've told you you always wipe front to back front to back people i think they all know that i don't know there's some dirty ass people walking <laughs> around with like shit balls it's true shit clits that's actually i was gonna say that's not why you do it though you do it to pr prevent urinary tract infection <laughs> there's like a medical reason oh yeah I just don't want to smell like shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't give a fuck if my urinary anyway. tract gets infected. <laughs> Anywho, so if you are a Newport junkie derelict like myself, if the Amtrak like NCIS crew needs to come out and draw chalk lines and shit like that, it was literally like six hours we were sitting there. I was like, I'm I'm literally jumping off this train. I know. I was I like, I see stairs. I see stairs. Yeah. And like at that moment, I was like, this fucking selfish asshole. That's all I could think about. And, you know, I, it's horrible. You never want anyone to feel that desperate. But, dude, you didn't have to do it. And literally, your friends and family are tortured. And so are the 200 people sitting on this train. <laughs> like, I feel bad for your family. But did you really have to involve the people on this locomotive. Yeah, like, you are no longer suffering. Good for you. Everyone else around you is. <laughs> My anxiety like, is you're suffering. you're a complete asshole. <laughs> I need a goddamn Newport. So, anyway, and I say, I tell my son this, too, over and over and over again. In fact, as a parent, that's actually my biggest fear. That he's going to jump in front of a train? Suicide. Really? Yes, and it's funny. I've talked to other moms that feel the same way. Of all of the things that can go wrong in a child's life, and I'm talking about like sickness and heartache and, you know, not making the basketball team, whatever it is, you're worried about suicide? Yes, and I don't even think I have high-risk kids. I mean, who knows about Frankie, but like, Max a pretty level-headed, not super, like, you know what I mean? Mm. I, I don't have any mental health concerns for him, but I probably tell him Anytime it can come up in conversation, even if it's only a slight thing, I somehow work it in there saying that there is always a way out, that I will always be here to help you, and that is never a solution. Like, I, I bring that up in daily conversation. Is that something that you should not be worrying about? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's not like... Is that mental health? That that's what I worry about? Yeah. No, it's And funny. again, I'm, I'm not saying that to be an asshole. I'm just like, I, I, this is actually the first time that I've ever heard this. So I'm just, I'm a little, 
I don't know if taken aback or confused or. It's funny. No, I've talked to other moms of like teenagers or adolescents who have hmm. the same fear. Interesting. And again, not that they're actually worried about their child. I think because as a parent, I I think I would feel like that was an ultimate failure on my part. Really? Oh, yeah. Like, how did I not make them know that they were worth it? That's how I would feel. And I mm. again, I guess you can look at it if they pick up drugs or alcohol, like whatever. But I don't sure. know. I think some of that can be some normal teenage stuff that can go poorly, right? But like, oh yeah, if my 14-year-old has a six-pack with his friends, that's I'm not going to feel like a bad parent because of that. I know that sounds terrible, but like... No, neither would I. That's like an expected outcome. You yeah, know what no, I mean? I think that's just... Uh, it just sounds like a terrible thing to say, but I think that's almost like... A rite of passage. Yes. And I think, you know, how we handle it as parents speaks volumes to our parenting, but not how... Not if it happens. You know what I mean? No. But something like suicide, I think to me, that is the ultimate. I don't know. I, and I that's not true because I'm sure there's so many parents out there who've lost children to suicide that were great parents. But I don't know. For me personally, for some reason, that is my biggest fear with my children. That is nowhere on my radar at this point in time with Frankie. Uh, again, I, I think if I'm going to be super honest, my, my biggest concern with Frankie would be, you know, obviously inheriting that, that alcoholic gene. Sure, absolutely. Or, or catching the bug or whatever. And we think about that and we talk about it. And I know Chris and I sometimes joke about it, but it's really kind of a uh, secretly like one of those like nervous laughters. Because I think we're both afraid of it. I think we see traits in her that we worry about already at two years old. And they could be normal two-year-old things, but we're hypervigilant about it. So the fact that she does the spins until she falls down, or the fact that her lovey, quote-unquote, is holding an empty bottle and three water cups. Like, you don't need that many, honey. No, that messes with my <laughs> head. Of course. Like, I am hyper-aware about that you know what I mean like girl don't you want a stuffed animal no I want to carry around six beverages so did mommy that's how we got here you know what I mean like mm. I, I do I, I do you know but I don't worry about stuff like that with Frankie yet like it's too it's too soon to tell I tell you all the time this is the easy part like two-year-olds are challenging but not really I mean you know you're teaching them right from wrong and things of that nature but little people little problems Oh, it's not question. until they, you know, start like that adolescence or till they understand that someone else is being mean to them mm -hmm. that you have to start worrying about them. And, you know. Yeah, no, I think this is the best part of the stage that we're in with Frankie right now is that, you know, my biggest daily concern is like, is she eating? Has right. she napped? Is she walking around with shit in her pants? Yeah, is her diaper clean? Exactly. Like, the, these are the things that I worry about at this point. They are not, in the grand scheme of things, like challenging or troubling issues at all. Right. And, it, and it's, this is literally as easy as it gets. And I mean, we've gotten to that phase now where it is because she speaks, you know, teaching her to say please and thank you. Teaching her to ask for something like, you know, or... You can't hit, you can't bite, you can't, you know, those type of things, you know, mm -hmm. which, so it's a little harder than the infant stage, but like not much. It's not that bad. And no. it's cut and dry shit. Don't yeah. bite me. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like you don't have to do an emotional deep dive about it. No, you would though. 
I'm too much of a narcissist for that. <laughs> oh, my God. I knew you were going to turn it around on me, you selfish prick. Of course. <laughs> selfish and self-centered I am. Do you have any other words of wisdom? Do you have anything to give our audience this evening? No. Okay. Then let's call it a night. Let's do it. Say good night, darling. <laughs> good night. I'm Megan, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm Chris. I'm an alcoholic. Cut off your pets' privates. And please, super, super important, if you are struggling in any way, Put your hand up, reach out, ask for help. So I Married an Alcoholic is sponsored by RealtorAndABaby.com. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease real estate? Even if you're not in greater Philadelphia, reach out with your contact information so you can be connected with the most qualified realtor in your area. RealtorAndABaby at gmail.com.